coding in the browser has been attempted several times in the last decade. Building a full development environment in the browser has numerous technical challenges. How does the code execute safely? How do you fit all the requirements of a development environment into a browser window? How do you get users to switch from their normal IDE, the interactive development environment, to your new web-based environment? Code Sandbox is an online code editor created by Ivish Van Horn and Bosch Bursma. Code Sandbox allows users to program and run applications in the browser. It's a full development platform that allows users to install NPM modules, run their code, and share their applications with other users. The engineering problems within Code Sandbox are not simple. Building a web-based IDE is complicated, but Code Sandbox is also an exciting project because it lowers the barrier to entry for many newer programmers. The development experience for a new programmer is still a difficult on-ramp. If you're an experienced developer, you have a workflow that you're comfortable with. It might involve Vim or Emacs or JetBrains IDEs or Eclipse, but newer developers can find these development environments confusing and hard to get started with. The development environments of today are integrated with build tools and Git repositories and deployment platforms. This can be overwhelming for a newer developer. Code Sandbox is a very visual tool, and it makes it especially useful for new developers who learn through seeing examples running live in the browser quickly. Code Sandbox is also used by web developers who do have experience, but who want a modern, shareable form of developing software. It's a renaissance in online web development right now, with things like Git workflows and new development platforms like Netlify and Zeit and GraphQL middleware. We've done a lot of shows about this new form of somewhat serverless web development. And Code Sandbox fits really nicely into that paradigm shift that's going on. Evish and Bosch join the show to talk about the motivation for Code Sandbox and the engineering challenges that they have solved. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think you will too. We have a couple events coming up. April 3rd and April 6th. On April 3rd, we have a meetup with Hasib Qureshi at Cloudflare in San Francisco. We're going to be sitting down for a conversation with Hasib about cryptocurrencies and venture capital and software engineering. Hasib's a good friend of mine and somebody who has been a frequently requested repeat guest on Software Engineering Daily. And then on April 6th, we have a hackathon for Find Collabs, the company that I'm building. You can find out about that by going to findcollabs.com slash hackathon or softwareengineeringdaily.com slash hackathon. There's a $5,000 prize purse. And to enter, you just have to add a project to Find Collabs. That project can be open source. It can be an art project. It can be a music project. And ideally, you'll find collaborators to help you build that project and to have fun working with. The in-person meetup for Find Collabs will be April 6th at App Academy. We'll have some food. We'll hang out. We'll have a great time. I hope to see you there. And if you do want to come, sign up for one of these events by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup or softwareengineeringdaily.com slash hackathon. The space for these events will probably run out. So I recommend checking them out soon. Thank you.
Ivis Van Horne and Bosch Bursma. You guys are the creators of Code Sandbox. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hello. Thank you oh. for having us. So Code Sandbox is a web-based IDE or online code editor, and we can talk about Code Sandbox eventually. But first, let's just talk about the question of web-based development environments. Why do I need a code editor on the web? Why not just use my code editor that is local? <laughs> That's a very good question. That's one that we've been asked a lot before. So the good thing about having an online web code editor is that you can, when you have, for example, a problem, you can easily share the editor with someone else and they can work with you. So there's the collaboration aspect, but you also put the code editor away from, from the machine. So you can have like multiple machines with the same environment. So let's say you're in a different location or you don't have access to your main machine, then you can still continue working because you can go to the website and start working from where you left off. Then you also have the development environment itself, like the server that runs your code. That one is external as well. So you're also not tied to your system requirements. Like if you need some development server that runs like on four gigabytes of RAM, you don't need to use those four gigabytes of RAM on your own PC. So there are a bunch of things that make it better to use an online code editor. And why is it hard to build an online IDE? Because I completely agree with you that there are a lot of benefits to having one, but for the most part, people are still using their local IDEs. Yeah, so there are a lot of answers to this one. I think the main thing with online code editors is, is that they need to be reliable. So it's quite recent that, that we have a lot of connectivity that we uh, can do online editing from like, for example, the train, the network is getting better. But if, for example, a service goes down, then you also lose your productivity. And this is a reason that lots of people are very wary of using online code editors. But it's becoming more popular to use online tools, for example, for designing. Sketch recently announced that they are going to make the design tool on the web. The same for Figma is already on the web. And people also do text editing with, for example, Google Docs or Microsoft Office on the web. And it's only since, I think, a couple of years that there are code editors that are completely based on uh, web technologies like Microsoft Visual Studio Code. So lots of aspects have recently changed and more and more people are starting to use an online code editor for editing code. We have some past examples of online IDEs. There's Cloud9. There's JS Fiddle. What were the approaches of the online IDEs of the past? Yeah, Cloud9 is uh, also Dutch, so that's also a really cool example. And by the way, I guess I shouldn't say of the past because people are still using these today. Yeah, that's true. And JS Fiddle and Cloud9 are quite different in what they aim to achieve. For example, Cloud9 is aiming to replace your development environment so that you do your primary development of all your services or your code on Cloud9, while JS Fiddle is more like a companion application where you do write code in it, but it's mostly to either prototype something quickly or it's to share the code with someone else so that they can also look at it, like for example, bug reports or examples. And with Code Sandbox, we are trying to be more in the middle of those two. When I started with Code Sandbox, I found that uh, I couldn't do as much as I wanted with JS Fiddle or CodePen when I wanted to share an example. 
but I also didn't have my laptop with me. So I wasn't able to use to to like see someone's code or create code when I had questions for my coworkers. So that's when more of the idea of Code Sandbox came where it is useful for creating small applications, for creating bug reports, for examples. It's also used for workshops and job interviews, but it isn't aiming to replace the primary development environment yet because that's a tricky one to handle. Explain what Code Sandbox does. <laughs> that might be a good one to... Uh, yeah, to explain. So Code Sandbox is an online code editor and it's focused on web application development. So we decided at first when Code Sandbox came out, it was only focused on React application development. So people could share their React examples or when they had a library, they could uh, share those examples with uh, React to others. And that's also our main focus. We want to have web application developments central in Code Sandbox so that we can make that experience perfect. And we focus right now on that people can easily prototype and create examples or bug reports to other people because that's something that's becoming more and more a usage pattern for developers. For example, if you're a library author and you want to show an example of your library to someone else, then you can use code samples for that. Or if you want to quickly prototype something or do some pair programming on something that you want to try out or test a function, then you can use code samples for that as well. Or if you want to create a small service like a microservice, then code samples would also be a good fit for that. And the main focus of us is to be focused on web application development. So we can, for example, provide deployment services like Now or uh, FrontSite or Netlify deployments we are kind of trying to make it effortless to start a new project and work on it. Speaking more abstractly, what are the goals of Code Sandbox, both as a project and as a company? When we started Code Sandbox, it became popular pretty quickly. And we put out three core values for us to follow so that we, when we had like a feature request, we would we are kind of arguing by these three values. So the first value is lower the learning curve. When people start with web development or with JavaScript development, there is a huge amount of things you need to do before you can get started. You need to set up your terminal code editor. You need to learn the terminal. You need to learn about uh, package management like NPM or Yarn. Then you need to set the whole project up. And with an editor that's already pre-configured with pre-configured projects in the browser, you can just go to the project and start editing text before, and you can see it change life without setting up anything like a development server. And that's a really good advantage because you will have this feeling of that you're already doing something useful before you have to set this all up. And when you think that you are actually going to do it more, then you can set up the whole environment. The second value is, is that we want to make it very easy to share and discover projects from others. So when you create something on Code Sandbox, you can share it with a URL and people will, can open it in their own editor. They can fork it. And it's very it's a bit like a very lightweight GitHub where people create projects and it's easily to fork and you can just continue working on it. With the discovery part, we want to we have a search. So if you, for example, need help with a dependency, then you can search on Code Sandbox and filter on that dependencies. And you can see all the projects that use these dependencies. So you can see it as this big knowledge base of things that people create. And the last value is, is that we want to make it easy for people to create applications and services. So this is more close to the local editor experience. We think that Code Sandbox should feel like a local code editor and it should work like a local code editor. 
Because if you have something that behaves differently, then you would have to learn two environments. And the best case scenario is that if you go to Code Sandbox, it works exactly like your local code editor. So you don't have to learn a new way of working. And we value this by everything that we do. So every feature that we build or every change that we made to make to the website is put to test against these three values. And if none of those values improve, then we decide to not build this feature. And if one of these values improved and we decide to build it. One element of Code Sandbox that I find appealing is the fact that this is something that appeals to both entry-level developers and to sophisticated developers. So, you know, on, on the sophisticated developer front, you know, that makes complete sense. You're a sophisticated developer and it would make sense, like, everything that you're describing about kind of WYSIWYG editor, but, you know, just being able to develop in the same environment that I do everything else in, which is the browser, you know, and being able to have this really easy package installation experience and, and all the other things that you that you get out of CodeSand. is really quite a cool product. I, I encourage people to, to just check it out because if you see it, you will understand why this is such a cool and popular project. But on the, the introductory developer side of things too, you seem to have a lot of empathy with people who are getting started developing software. And, and I, I've seen this firsthand uh, and I've heard about it a lot, like talking to Quincy from Free Code Camp, like why people drop off when they're starting to learn programming. I think a lot of it has to do with, the, you know, if it takes a long time to get to the moment where you feel some dopamine and you feel an element of, of excitement, like you've actually built something or you've actually tweaked something and you understand why you tweaked it and why it had a cool outcome. If you don't get to that dopamine, then you're never going to become a programmer. You're, it, so you have to get to that initial, you know, it used to be the hello world experience, but now the, yeah. the bar has been raised, it seems. So is there some element, like, did, did you have like a bad experience learning to code or something where like, is, is that informing your empathy for the inexperienced developer? <laughs> yeah, that's, that hits pretty close to home. For me, it was uh, initially when I tried to do development, I stopped with it because I didn't really like it. I didn't get to the dopamine rush. And later when I picked it up because I wanted to try something new again, I got the dopamine rush. And now for me, development, that's what excites me, this dopamine rush of making something work. And if you start, so if, if development is about this dopamine rush, then you should experience it as soon as possible because based on that you can you can kind of judge if you are going to like this or not and this is something that i also notice with other students so uh, we still live on the university and there are lots of students here getting started with uh, web development if they have to set up this whole environment they might drop off sooner because that, that's really the boring part i if if my whole job would be to set up these environments for as a full-time job and i know that some people like it but I'm not a big fan of it, then I wouldn't be interested in programming, but it's about building this stuff. That's if you put a focus on actually building stuff, that's much more exciting. So if you can get this building phase as soon as possible, that is that is the best case scenario. And yeah, it's already cool that if you can just edit some text and send hello world, that already gives this small dopamine rush. It's the preview window that's just next to the editor. That's also really nice to see. That when you open Code Sandbox and you see an example, you have a visual representation next to it that it's executed. And it also tells you where you screwed something up. If you mess up something, 
you know, it's not just, it, it doesn't just give you, a, well, depending on what the context is, but it'll give you the error message, but it also gives you suggestions, and you can just one-click and have your code fixed in some context, which is pretty cool. If you if you have if you forgot a semicolon somewhere, it won't just say you forgot your semicolon. It'll say click here, and we'll just like automatically fill in the missing semicolon for yeah. you, which is pretty pretty nice. Yeah, exactly. That's the cool thing about having like ownership over the whole environment because our editor knows about the files, it knows about the code, how it executes the code, and we can take advantage of this. And one example is, for example, um, because we focus so much on web development and initially on React development, in like the early days, there was a very specific React error that uh, lots of people had. When they forgot to name a file with an extension, it would be imported as a string. And if people... So like without .js. Yeah, exactly. Without .js. And then people expected it would be a component if it exports a component, but it's a string. And React used to give a very strange error message, like a very ambiguous error message of that it doesn't understand what it is as a component. And people were having this issue. They, they send it in the Discord of Code Sandbox that they had this also during job interviews. And we can easily detect this. If we see an import that's without an extension and it's used as a component, we can already see, oh, yeah, this is, should be a React component. So we changed the, we kind of caught the error message and transformed it and added a button. And if you click that button, it renames the component to uh, .js. So it renames the file to .js. And those very small things can be very frustrating, and if but we can already catch them pretty easily. I was watching a presentation you had given, and one of the things that also made me think you might have had a bad experience programming early on was you took a subtle jab at learning Java in university, which I can completely relate to because in college most of our curriculum was focused around Java. And I got pretty good at Java, and all due respect to Java, Java has tons of benefits. And the JVM it turns out to be a really, really interesting ecosystem with millions of applications running, and it's very useful. But for newer developers, for students, like what's, what's appealing, what's fun, is the JavaScript world. And it's, it's kind of sad that the, because of the way that kind of universities work, I think they're kind of caught in, like they're caught in the Java, C++, maybe Python world, and they're just completely missing out that JavaScript is, is the way that you should be learning programming now. Yeah, I agree. Java, I think my first language was Ruby, but then I started learning uh, Java due to, um, was from Minecraft actually, but Java has a bunch of boilerplate. There are lots of, if you want to explain to someone how a piece of Java code works and they have never programmed before, then you have to, it's, it's almost impossible to explain it if you don't want to skip like some fundamentals because there's so much boilerplate with Java. And I think JavaScript is actually a very nice balance between simplicity and what you can do with it. And because there are no types, you don't have to explain the type system initially to someone. And you can gradually start introducing all those different different theories in the programming world. And that's super nice. If you, you can just, for example, if someone wants to learn how to write Hello World with JavaScript, it's, it's a one-liner. And for Java, it would require some boilerplate too. So I think that JavaScript is, one of, is at least a very good language to start with. 
yeah, and at our university, we still uh, we still start with the Java. <laughs> so that was my little stab at the Java. It was true. Yeah, I mean, I just remember my my Hello World experience with Java and just starting with public static void main string. <laughs> exactly. Brackets, brackets, args, you know, open <laughs> open brace, return, you know, system.out.println. <laughs> It's yeah. like, I know it from memory because I swear I spent days trying to understand, you know, like what, so what's a static, like static, what, yeah, what does public? that mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, the thing about the JavaScript world is there was in recent memory, and I think, you know, you could argue this still exists today, a, there is kind of a steep learning curve to understanding what's actually going on in the JavaScript world, because you have like, there's... There's React, and then, like, how does that work? And there's, you know, NPM modules, and how do these things work? And then it's like, okay, am I using TypeScript? Like, what is my build pipeline? What is this Webpack thing? What's your feeling on the learning curve of JavaScript today? Yeah, that part is a huge learning curve. And I think that the JavaScript world is not there yet with the tooling. Although it is so good to see that there are so many people taking a lot of effort to make this better. When you see, for example, new bundlers uh, pop up that uh, have zero configuration or very simple libraries that do the rendering for you. But still, it's 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 a steep learning curve. And that's one of the reasons that Code Sandbox was started because we try to make as many choices as possible for you. Library called Create React App was one of the inspiring factors for Code Sandbox. With Create React App, you can start a project by running a single command and it will scaffold your project, but it will hide all the configuration. And that's on purpose because they want to have simplicity. And for example, if someone says, I'm using Create React App, then the person you're talking to, if they know Create React App, they already know everything about the build system and how it works. And there's a lot of power to that. If you want to escape from this CLI, then you can call create React app eject, and then you will be actually able to see the configuration files. And we wanted to do something similar for Code Sandbox, but then with the whole build tooling with the editor setup and all these dependencies. So when you start a new project, we already made a bunch of choices for you. For example, we decided that you use create React app. We decided you don't have to choose between npm or yarn even the package managers are there are like four different package managers now in the javascript ecosystem and you don't have to choose an editor or how to run the code all those choices are made for you and with that we hope to make it so that you don't have to think about all these things and you can think about them later i find it pretty interesting to compare all these tools but if you actually want to build something then all these this whole all this choice gets in the way of getting started. So yeah, I agree with the JavaScript community. It's a good thing that there are so many tools because tools are getting better. They are competitive, so they try to stay on top of each other. But when you're getting started, it's it can be overwhelming. And then with tools like Code Sandbox, uh, JS Fiddle is also a good tool actually, and CodePen and JSPin as well. They already make choices for you, and that makes it uh, easier for you to learn. How do developers use Code Sandbox today? Are they using it as their actual IDE? Yeah, there's like a wide range of use cases. Someone built like a, a Redis server on Code Sandbox. Most people use Code Sandbox either for documentation, bug reports, to prototype to with other people. It's used for job interviews. It's used for workshops. It's also used for um, creating like small applications. For example, like if you have a back office tool that you need to make, 
And we've seen that people use it for big applications like main developments, but it's not used that much for this use case yet. And we want to, that's also because Code Sandbox has been focusing mostly on the smaller applications, but uh, we want to make it possible to also build bigger applications with Code Sandbox and hope to see uh, like bigger things built on Code Sandbox. But yeah, the, I think the core value for Code Sandbox is just that it's an online code editor that's very easily shareable. You can just share a link with someone and they will see the exact same environment that you built something in. And there are lots of different uses, use cases that you can tie to it. I think we haven't found all the use cases yet. Job interviews was something that I never thought of with uh, Code Sandbox, or bug reports was also something that I didn't think of when um, starting with uh, Code Sandbox. But yeah, that's how well, it's mostly Why bug reports? What's the bug reports use case? Oh, that's a really funny one. So if you're an open source author or you have like a library and people send in a bug report, like when I give these parameters, this function doesn't work or it throws an error, then it's much more useful to also give like a reproducible. And previously this was done using GitHub, like you give a GitHub repository or you give a snippet of code that they have to run in their own editor to test it. But nowadays lots of lots of open source library authors, mostly in the React community, they have an issue template where they put in a code sandbox example and they ask people to put the bug in the code sandbox example and then link it in the issue so that when library authors can just open the sandbox and see the error right away. Interesting. So what's the architecture of code sandbox? So I open it up and code sandbox is in my browser. What's going on under the hood? So code sandbox consists of multiple when I started with Code Sandbox, it was simple. It had like a React front end and the back end was in Phoenix and Elixir. And we have a Postgres database and a Redis database for caching. And that's still very similar to how it is now. So the front end is completely in React. Then we have the back end which just serves as an API. And we have a database, Postgres and Redis. We now also have some microservices, node microservices. But the interesting thing that I think is pretty cool about Code Sandbox is that for the majority of the projects built on Code Sandbox, they are executed in the browser. So we have built something that's very similar to Webpack, not as advanced as Webpack, but um, it works good enough for us. And it's a, it's kind of like a bundler, but it's optimized to work in the browser. For example, for transpiling, we optimize it by running all the transpilations in web workers so we can do it in parallel. And it's cached using a service worker, so it works offline. So whenever you open a project in Code Sandbox, you actually execute the code instead of us. And this was super useful because when we started with Code Sandbox, we were just students, so we didn't we are not able to run all the code on servers. That would be super expensive. <laughs> and for the first year of Code Sandbox, we run everything on a $40 VPS at Vulture. And at some point we had like, I don't know, I think we had like 300,000 visitors in a month and we were still running everything on a $40 server because we let the user execute all the code in the browser. It even got to the point where we also let the user generate the cache of a sandbox. So whenever a sandbox is executed, we generate a cache of all the computations that have been made and all the transpilations, all the CPU intensive work. And then we let the user upload this cache to our servers. And this way, we even let users generate and work on our cache. <laughs> and I found it, found it pretty funny. It feels a bit like Bitcoin mining, but that's, that's also not the same thing. <laughs> but it allowed us to keep our costs very low. 
And since November, we also have a different kind of project on Code Sandbox called Containers. And there we run on the code on Docker containers. And that's for some templates applicable. That's pretty cool. So you mentioned service workers and web workers. I think this is actually a topic that we have not covered at all on Software Engineering Daily. Can you explain what a service worker and a web worker are? Yeah. So the worker concept is a way for JavaScript always runs in one thread. And the worker concept is kind of like the answer of JavaScript for allowing run code to run simultaneously um, at the same time. And a web worker is a new process, kind of. You can see it as a new process that spawns and then executes your code. And it has a messaging protocol. So you can, from the main thread, you can send messages to it. For example, uh, transpile this code, and then it can send a message back with the answer. And because it runs off the main thread, the UI won't uh, stall when it's doing heavy computation work. So that's a good advantage. Then the service worker is very similar to a web worker, but it's much more powerful. So service worker has a lot of rights that web workers can't have. So one thing, for example, as a website, you can register a service worker and you have one service worker per website. So for example, if you have like five tabs open, they share the same service worker. And the service worker can intercept network requests, for example, and it can do a bunch of other stuff. It can show notifications. It can run in the background when the website is not open to do computation. But I always found the network intercepting very interesting because with this, you can make websites work offline. For example, if you don't have a network connection or you're offline, then with a service worker, you can still go to the website and the service worker can handle the network requests and give a response back that is, for example, cached or something that the service worker already knows. And this way, it doesn't seem like the website is offline. So, for example, with Code Sandbox, when you have a project and you run it once on your machine, whenever you're offline, you can still run it because our service worker cached all the files that are used in the initial run. And it will give back those files if it detects that you're offline. I think on the back end, you mentioned it's Elixir? Yep, it's Elixir. <laughs> Code Sandbox started as a learning project for me. It was, uh, it was more of an escape from the lectures at the university. And I always wanted to learn Elixir. So this sounded like the perfect fit to learn Elixir. And I have to admit this, I had to rewrite it three times before I was able to like grok the functional programming uh, paradigm completely. But it's been super, super powerful until now. For example, we uh, have this functionality in Code Sandbox that allows you to edit code at the same time that you can, like Google Docs, that you can see this cursor moving. And this was all implemented in Elixir. And it handles it super well. We were able to have like, I think, 200 different users connected to live sessions at the same time. And the server was just able to handle it. And this was still around the time where we had this $40 VPS. So I was very impressed with uh, with how Elixir handles this. And Elixir is based on uh, Erlang. So it runs on the same VM as Erlang. And Erlang is designed to be very concurrent. Erlang has this very cool concept where everything that all computations are in separate processes, a bit like web workers, but these processes are super lightweight. So you can just, when you do a computation, you can start a process and it has a messaging API and it will do the computations for you. And the advantage is, for example, if a process crashes, then it can just, the supervisor, which handles the processes, can just spawn a new process and it will behave like normal. So it's very isolated. And it's also horizontally scalable. 
in the case of us, if we have like 200 people connected at the same time to our uh, server, then it just spawns 200 processes that handle the incoming connections and then pass them to new processes that do the computation. This is super cool because our system in theory would be infinitely scalable because a server is just a bunch of processes. And if you add a new server and you make it think like they are the same server, it's just one big pool of processes that can communicate with each other. So yeah, I'm super excited about this concept and it's helped us already quite a bit. Code Sandbox is, is it entirely open source? No. So for Code Sandbox, everything is open source except for our API server. So that's the, that's actually the Phoenix server and the Alexia part and our uh, container structure. And we're considering of open sourcing the container structure. Yeah, when we, with CodeSandbox, we had the idea, like we wanted to keep the option of on-premise open when we started with CodeSandbox. So we decided not to open source the API server. A lot has changed in the meantime. So I think we need to revisit this at some point, but all the other stuff is open source. So the client, and that's actually where most of the code is because we try to do lots of computation on the, in the browser. And all the microservices are the node microservices are open source. So what's the the functionality for the API server? Is that just like when people are creating new code sandboxes and like, I guess, the database of all the different code sandboxes that people have created? Yeah, yeah. It functions as a database. So when people create a new sandbox, it's stored in our using our API server in the Postgres database. And when people fork, it's... Uh, You can see it as this data store. The API server is very light in the sense that it's kind of like this gateway to the database. It does have some logic behind the live collaboration thing, but that's the heaviest part of the API server. So as a business, you have all these code sandboxes that people are creating in your database. What are the network effects to having all those code sandboxes? How do you mean with network like bandwidth? No, more like as a business. I mean, there must be some advantage to aggregating like, you know, all these different sandboxes that people are playing around in. I guess more more broadly, maybe you could just talk about what the, what the vision is for the business. Yeah, so that's it. For example, with saving all these sandboxes, we haven't done it enough yet, but we want to make it more easily for people to like find new sandboxes with, uh, you can see some usage patterns. So for example, filter by dependencies, that's something that we already do, but also filter, for example, by version. As a company, we want to make it easier for people to, mostly for open source, we want to focus a lot on open source. We want it easier for people to share their documentation and examples. So I already described earlier the scenario of a bug reports and uh, documentation. And we want to improve this with Code Sandbox by making the editor more configurable. For example, some websites, for example, the Babel Repl, they are building their own code editor to show transpiled code because that's what Babel does. It transpiles code from JavaScript to a different form of JavaScript, so to say. And they have this live editor where you can play with it. But I think that Code Sandbox would, for example, be a very good fit for, for this demo behavior. But the editor is not optimized to show transpiled code. For example, in the preview, you don't see the transpiled code. And it would be very cool if people have more configuration possibilities in the editor itself. They can, for example, set the linting rules or they can say what preview is shown as default. They can install custom dev tools. And that way they can more easily show to other developers their APIs. So that is something that we want to make much better as a business. 
We also want to make it more easily for prototyping and there are other use cases. For example, job interviews is something that was not really... People use it for job interviews, but it's not really optimized for job interviews. And by having a more configurable editor where you can, for example, add your own deployment target or you can add your own small UI that shows like a timer... These small changes so that people that people don't only edit the code that they want to show, but they can also edit the editor experience that they want to show to others. I think that would be very valuable for all the different use cases that are already done by Code Sandbox, but also for creating new use cases. To touch a, a little more on the front-end architecture, so if you open up a Code Sandbox, you have, as Bosch said, you, you have the code, but you also have the basically the the output of the code like you you know what the the ide alongside the rendering of the the website that you're building in the ide and i think that this this requires i think so you talk about iframes like basically it's like they're different these two sections are in iframes and they're like passing messages between each other can you just talk a little bit about the interaction you know on the browser between your editing space and the kind of what you see is what you get a space where where it's rendering what your code does yeah yeah so all the preview everything that you create the code is executed on a different domain because if we would execute the code on the same domain then the code that's written by the user would be able to access the cookies of the root domain and do potential potentially bad things with them so the code is executed in an iframe under a different subdomain and we communicate with this iframe using post message. So you can use post message to send messages to the iframe. The iframe can send messages back to the main window. And that's also how we execute the code. So in the client side evaluation, so that's how we call the bunter that runs in the browser. For that scenario, we send all the files of the project to the bundler and we give the entry point and the dependencies. And the bundler transpiles all this code and it installs the dependencies. And then it executes the code. And then it sends back either an error with the line and the column number, or it sends back that it's successfully transpiled. And there is a small API between the preview and the client and the editor that allows us to like control the editor from the preview. Not in not in a very substantial way. It's not very powerful, but it allows us to do things like um, with these suggestions where something is wrong with the component where it doesn't have an extension. These kind of things can be done from the preview. Then we can send the message, oh, rename this file to this file. You've talked a little bit about the opportunities of using WebAssembly to improve the experience of somebody who is using Code Sandbox. What opportunities do you see for WebAssembly? Oh, yeah, there's a wide range of stuff that we can do with WebAssembly. I found the story from Figma super interesting where they had a bunch of performance improvements by writing their design tool in WebAssembly in parts. So we already use WebAssembly for our syntax highlighting. CodeSandbox uses the Visual Studio Code Editor as the core editor so that it's very similar to your local environment. And we wanted to use the same syntax highlighting as Visual Studio Code, but they use a rec expression library for reading the, the syntax files that's written in C. And they try to, we tried to convert it to JavaScript, but that was much slower. So then we created a WebAssembly version of the C library for rec expressions. And that was actually pretty fast. And this way we were able to use the same syntax highlighting as 
Visual Studio Code, but in the browser. And this is a very good example of how WebAssembly can be very powerful. It's You have a lot more control over, over memory management, over how code is executed. So if you need to have a high-performing part of the, of the code editor, then you can write it either in C, C++, Rust, create a WebAssembly from it, version from it, and execute that. And I think we should explore, and we can explore many more different versions of this. For example, maybe it would be possible in the future to write C code in Code Sandbox, and we still run it in the browser, but in a WebAssembly version. That would be very interesting, too. So um, Maybe even Java code. <laughs> we go back to the Java. That would actually be um, pretty interesting. <laughs> What's the five-year vision for the company? The five-year vision is that people will use Code Sandbox actually as a way, default way of development. So right now, people still use their local code editor to do development. And I understand that. That's uh, It's safer. But we want to build the functionality in Code Sandbox where we have... It's so much better to develop in Code Sandbox. It's much better focused, much better streamlined. It's much easier to share. Source control is done very easily in Code Sandbox that it's more compelling to build something in Code Sandbox because then you can easily work together with other people on it. So that's our long-term vision. And that's something that we are aiming to achieve in a very gradual, gradual way. Like I said, that we are not focusing on being the primary editor right now. We are focusing on making it easier for the other use case of developers because developers, they don't only write code for applications. They write code for a lot of things, like for simple prototyping or for simple services for bug reports, for quickly sharing ideas with others. And we want to make those use cases, uh, we want to fix those first. Do you see any other opportunities to improve developer experience with dashboards or heads-up displays or better visualizations or just... Are there better ways to improve the developer experience with with just kind of a a better UX? Because I felt like when I was looking at Code Sandbox, I was like, this is just... This is so different, such a different experience than, you know, it's been a while since I've written code, but, you know, it's such a much friendlier user experience than than a lot of the other development tools I, I've used in the past. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, not that I used it, not that I used it extensively. So I'm I'm like, I'm definitely stroking your ego here. But I really did think it was beautiful. But what are the other opportunities to improve developer experience? Yeah, so people always are very visual, visual minded. We're a visual minded bunch of people, so to say. And I think that we can make it far easier for people to see, for example, if you have test results, it's far easier to see the test results in a UI. Or if you have an overview of how big your bundle size is, if you see the numbers, it doesn't say as much as if you see it in a visual way. For example, a comparison of how much of your bundle is dependencies and your own code, it's much easier to see this comparison in a visual way. And I think that we can make it make the whole editor experience far more visual, that you can very easily see the test results, that it automatically runs the tests when you change stuff, but then also shows it in a good UI. And also around the editor, the whole experience around the editor itself, for example, if you have like with a dashboard, you can see like a list of projects that you have and you have a screenshot of every project. So of the preview of every project, so you can easily see which project belongs to which code. And that's something that developers are very terminal-minded. And I think that we can make more tools that are more visual. It's, uh, 
I said once, uh, interfaceifies everything. And I think that's what we've been trying to do with Code Sandbox for a while. Yeah, I, I remember in college, like the cool way to do things was in Sublime Text. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm a fan of very basic text editors or... I guess Vim, you know, people still really like Vim. Some people are Vim. I, I was, I never got into that. I was like, this is just uh, onboarding. Onboarding is too steep. I guess I'm not cool enough. But <laughs> you need some kind of Vim plugin, perhaps, or like a Vim experience. Actually, that's there's probably nobody in that Venn diagram overlap. People that both want Vim and Code Sandbox. <laughs> well, we've seen some Vim uh, Vim support requests. <laughs> but we're deploying that on uh, actually this Monday. We're planning on a very big release this uh, Monday with uh, VS Code extension support and the such. And the Vim extension is also included. So if you have VS Code extension support, then that means like the same tweaks that people can make to their Visual Studio Code environment they can make to Code Sandbox. Yeah, yeah, that's what it comes down to. Initially, I wanted to support VS Code extensions, and I was thinking of like building a bridge between the VS Code API and the Code Sandbox API to make the extensions work better. But then I saw that it's so much work that I took a stab at like implementing more parts of VS Code directly in Code Sandbox, and that actually worked very well. So this update, we're going to make VS Code the default editor in Code Sandbox for our core editing, and it will allow for extensions and then also for the customization that you have in VS Code. Very cool. As we begin to wrap up, I'd like to know a little bit about your division of labor and kind of the the dynamics of co-founders. So what's the product development cycle like between you two? So Bas and I, we've been working on together on projects since we were 12, I think when we met in high school. <laughs> yeah, a long time. <laughs> yeah, but normally it goes like this when uh, when we have an idea. We live in student dorms at the university, but we live at the same student flat. It's actually our rooms are across each other. And I have a whiteboard. And when we have an idea, then we just start talking about this idea. And boss, he starts drawing it on, on my whiteboard. And then we put it in, into the design tool. And then the implementation happens. But that's that's just the product part. Bas does a lot of other stuff with CodeSandbox as well. Yeah, regarding the management of the, the, the business part, the, the Patreon, we have a Patreon feature. So people can support us and they get the ability to keep their sandboxes private. Because if you're using CodeSandbox for free, you get all the features basically, but um, your sandboxes are public. This is so if you create something cool, other people can also see it and learn from it. Cool. So you guys are still in school? <laughs> I'm not. I'm. Uh, I stopped with uh, studying at some point because as po- Code Sandbox got more popular, my grades went down. It was kind of like this correlated graph where I wasn't able to concentrate that much on studies anymore. And yeah, at some point I decided to drop out. Yeah, you can say that word. Bosh. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say like, why are you still attending classes? So I'm not attending classes anymore, but I'm almost finished with my bachelor in industrial design. Actually, so it's a whole different thing than uh, focus on programming but ah yeah <laughs> that's probably more fun <laughs> probably well we still have java classes so it's oh. <laughs> some things are the same but yeah I'm, I'm almost done and stuff that i'm doing for my studies right now is code sandbox related um so oh, yeah cool. we're since the beginning of 2019 we're both full-time on code sandbox and yeah you can say it's a true startup right now very cool well, guys, it's been really great talking, and I look forward to the continued success of Code Sandbox. 
Yeah, yeah. thank you so much. I, I love the conversation. Yeah, likewise. Very good conversation. Wow.